0: Trends in the management of type two diabetes. What's happening now and what's coming up next? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Dr. Sue Cornell, PharmD, a certified diabetes educator and assistant director of experiential education at Midwestern University Chicago College of Pharmacy. A fellow of the American Pharmacists Association, Dr. Cornell is also an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Midwestern. Dr. Cornell, welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: And we'll be discussing current trends in diabetes management. And I wanted to start off by asking about those trends. What exactly are we seeing in the type 2 diabetes population?
1: Well, unfortunately, we're seeing a huge epidemic in this disease and mainly in type 2 what's happened over the years is as the world has evolved and people have evolved we've seen an increase in food we've seen a decrease in activity we have multiple cultures coming to the united states and you know worldwide and it's actually estimated that worldwide every 10 seconds someone dies from diabetes and again worldwide in that same 10 seconds two people actually develop the disease. So it is a global epidemic. And more close to home, we find that actually here in the United States, every 21 seconds, someone is developing diabetes. And we see type 2 as being the main type of diabetes that most people are developing. You know, years ago, and I'm sure you remember back from the good old pharmacy school days, as I do, you know, we were always taught that type 2 diabetes was something you got later in life. You know, at that time it was like, oh, people over 40 get it or in over 50. Of course, now those numbers seem very young to me. But what we're finding is age is not an indicator anymore. That type 2 can occur at any time as well as type 1 can occur at any time. So really age does not define the disease. And we're seeing a trend of children and adolescents that are developing type 2 diabetes. As a matter of fact, I have a patient who is in my practice who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at the age of 13. So we're seeing more and more, again, children and adolescents that are developing this devastating disease which comes, as you know, with multiple, multiple complications.
0: What are the current treatment goals of therapy, both uh, non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic for patients with diabetes?
1: Well, the good news is we've had a huge plethora of medications that have come to market to try to treat this condition. The other good news is it is something that can be treated with some simple, very simple lifestyle modifications. And what we try to do as a diabetes educator, as I always put it to my patients, my job as a diabetes educator is to give them all of my knowledge so they can live every day with diabetes without me. And, you know, if you think about it, the person who has diabetes, they live with it day in and day out, so they have to always manage it. And knowing how to manage it is the best way they can control it opposed to letting it control them. So what we encourage patients to do is learn as much as they can about diabetes. And that's where actually 80% of managing the disease comes from non-pharmacological treatment strategies. So, you know, healthy eating. Notice I didn't say diet because we don't say diet because diet's usually a short-term thing. Healthy eating, it's just a behavior you want to develop for life exercise or activity, just increasing activity, managing their weight, you know, losing a few pounds can actually make a huge difference in their blood sugar, their blood pressure, and their lipids. So, you know, simple lifestyle modifications can actually make a big difference. And of course, you know, as a pharmacist, you're very well aware of all of the new drugs that have come to market and the new ones that are, you know, knocking on the door and in the pipeline. And what we've learned over the past decades about diabetes, specifically type 2, is it's a multiple organ disease. You know, again, years ago, back when we were in school and we were first learning about it, you know, I was told the pancreas was the problem. Well, now we know the pancreas is one of five organs that is actually the problem in this really serious disease. The liver doesn't work right. The tissue doesn't absorb sugar correctly. We have the stomach or the GI tract that doesn't utilize or move the food through appropriately, and of course, even the brain. so we have multiple organs that we know of and we're discovering more every day, that are defective with this disease. And so when we come to treating it, we need to use treatments that fix all of the broken organs, opposed to picking one medication that fixes one organ. And my analogy, when I talk to you know other healthcare professionals or patients. I'd say, for example, if you had a car and your car, you bring it into the shop because your transmission went out, your brakes went out, and your fuel line was faulty, and you brought it in, but they only fixed your transmission, the car still wouldn't work right. And that's the same thing with diabetes. We have multiple organs that are broke, and if we choose one particular medication to fix one particular organ, that's great, but we're not fixing the other organs that are broke. Now, in addition to that, you know, for every medication that's out there, it pretty much mimics a lifestyle behavior. So, for example, I mean, a lot of folks are familiar with pioglitazone and rosiglitazone, the glitazone class of drugs, and they're nothing more than exercise in a pill. Metformin, which is first-line therapy for treatment of type 2 diabetes, is nothing more than eating breakfast. So, for every drug that's out there, it is adjunct to lifestyle because it's complementing those behavior changes or those lifestyle changes that we're encouraging folks to actually make to improve their health.
0: So you've outlined the rationale for combination therapy, certainly. When a patient's newly diagnosed, where exactly do we start them then?
1: Well, interesting that you bring that up because every June, the American Diabetes Association hosts their annual scientific sessions, and you know this is where the latest, greatest trends are actually introduced and, you know, folks are educated on them. And this year's Banting Award winner was Dr. Ralph DeFranco. And uh, as I always put it, Dr. DeFranco is one of the godfathers of diabetes. And he's in San Antonio, Texas, and he does a lot of the research on type 2 diabetes. And interesting, in his lecture, he actually stated that he sees down the road upon diagnosis of type 2 triple therapy from the get-go his recommendations were metformin aglitazone and one of the incretin hormones specifically he went with an incretin mimetic but you know he did generalize it to say incretin hormones so he's actually identifying three agents pharmacological agents from the get-go again with the rationale of there's multiple body parts that are broke so you're going in to fix those multiple body
0: parts If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Dr. Sue Cornell, PharmD, a certified diabetes educator and assistant director of experiential education at Midwestern University Chicago College of Pharmacy. We're discussing best practices in the management of type 2 diabetes, specifically starting patients out potentially with triple drug therapy at diagnosis, and that may be becoming a trend. Now, Dr. Cornell, you'd mentioned incretin mimetic as one of the different components of that triple drug therapy. Are incretin mimetics currently recommended in treatment guidelines?
1: In the treatment guidelines, the ADA algorithm that was actually introduced and published in the latter half of 2006, they're actually not on that algorithm. But interestingly, the reason or the rationale behind it is when the consensus group met to come up with kind of a roadmap, for lack of a better term, or the algorithm on the treatment of diabetes, of type 2 diabetes in particular, they had set some clear guidelines because, again, with the plethora of drugs out there, where do they go with this? And one of the things that they had discussed was, you know, whether you agree with this or not, they discussed not utilizing drugs or placing them in the algorithm if they hadn't been on the market for at least six years within the United States. So with that being said, many of the newer agents that we're very familiar with and we're actually you know, in favor of using, they are actually not in that algorithm. However, in the revision of this algorithm, I do expect to see them definitely showing a presence. And the rationale behind that as well is because some of the newer agents have a better side effect profile, should we say, than some of the older agents. You know, one of the big concerns with diabetes and medication is weight gain. Many of the agents that are actually listed on the 2006 algorithm, one of the adverse effects is weight gain. And here you have a person, you know, with diabetes, you're telling them to lose weight, but the drug is causing them to gain weight. They're kind of going, well, what should I do here? The newer agents are either weight neutral or encourage some weight loss. And that's where the newer agents may actually show a better or favorable effect as first-line therapies down the road. Not to mention that one of the things coming up now, too, again, we talked about the multi-organ dysfunction with diabetes, but diabetes is a progressive disease. And what happens as we know from the ADOPT trial, which looked at sulfonylureas, metformin, and the glitazones, and they were kind of looking over five years in monotherapy, how do these drugs work and how do they last? And in all cases, you know, over five years of time, the disease progressed and the patients actually lost control of their A1C. It actually, the A1C increased, you know, with, of course, the glutazones being most favorable at keeping, you know, the A1C to a lower end. However, what we're looking at is that monotherapy alone just wouldn't control that A1C. So, you know, with that being said, the ultimate goal is how do we preserve or prevent the progression of diabetes, and with that, we're looking at how do we save the beta cell, because the destruction of the beta cell is what progresses the disease. If the beta cells are not producing insulin, then that's where the disease progresses, and that's where most patients will end up using insulin. And What's really interesting, and you've probably heard about the study that was done in China, with a group of patients that were immediately, you know, newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they were actually put on an insulin pump for two weeks and then taken off. And after two years, 40% of those people still did not have diabetes. So their diabetes went into a remission and stayed in that remission for two years to date. So we're seeing resting the beta cell or saving the beta cell at an early intervention can actually go a long way.
0: So when a patient's newly diagnosed, it's not necessarily even too late. Correct. And then you'd also mentioned sulfonylureas. Are those a dying breed?
1: And sulfonylureas were the first drug oral agent that came to market. And, you know, that was a nice alternative for folks from insulin who were, you know, not fond of injecting themselves several times a week or, you know, once or twice a day back in the 70s and 80s. So when sulfonylureas came to market, they definitely had a place. But as we have learned more about the disease, we're finding that really sulfonylureas are not fixing a broken organ. I mean, you think they are because they're helping the pancreas to secrete insulin, but they're actually having the pancreas secrete what we call phase two insulin. And the body doesn't really need more phase two insulin at the time of diagnosis or after it needs the early phase insulin or phase one insulin, which sulfonylureas are not helping. So they're not commonly used as first line. And to answer your question, yes, I do see them kind of decreasing and kind of going away or subsiding over the years to come.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Sue Cornell about treating type 2 diabetes. Dr. Cornell, thank you so much for being our guest.
1: It was a pleasure to be here today, Charles.
0: I'm Dr. Charles Turk. You've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MDXM157. And thank you for listening.